Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that this morning that uh, you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts to hear what you would have to say to us, Lord, that you would take away any words that I would speak that are not of you, but Lord, that you would encourage this morning and challenge us through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you'd like, if there's a Bible near you, or there should be some at the end of pews and things like that, if you want to just turn to that passage that um, Jane has read to us, it's in Matthew's Gospel, um, Matthew chapter 7. And um, somebody might even shout out a um, page number, if they've got it there. 972. First book in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through, page 972. It's Matthew chapter 27, and it starts at verse 24. So just keep your finger in there this morning. The, um, the series that we're working our way through at the moment um, is called Jesus Revealed, and we're really looking at uh, the Gospel of Matthew and looking at the real Jesus um, in the Gospel, not just the Jesus that we read about as the baby in the manger or the Jesus who might have been a good man or a moral teacher or a great storyteller, but looking at who Jesus really was according to the gospel accounts and according to who he claimed to be. And not only that, but ultimately what difference that makes in discovering who the real Jesus is to our lives um, today, 2,000 years after this man left the planet. And so far, we've looked through right from the beginning of uh, Matthew. So we started with the genealogy, i.e. the history um, of, of Jesus, the lineage of him, and looking at the place of different people in God's plan in that list, a list of people, often several of them flawed in nature, but part of God's plan as it led towards Christ. And then we looked at his birth. We looked at the Christmas story at not the Christmas time, which is unusual, but looking at some of the people within that story and how they reacted to their encounter with Jesus, often in fear. And we saw how Joseph reacted to, um, to his fear of shame, and the Magi reacted to their fear of being wrong, and King Herod reacted to his fear of losing power, and thought about how we might react when we encounter the real Jesus. And then last week, uh, Richard was looking at part of Jesus' teaching a little bit earlier on um, from where we are now and looked at the passage where he talks about not worrying and thinking about having a right view of what God's done that enables us to live a life of generosity and a life of satisfaction. So if you haven't heard all of those, then it's really easy to catch up. Log on to your Church Suite app if you're a member here. And uh, the podcasts are there. If you're not on Church Suite or you're listening to this podcast, then they're all on SoundCloud as well. But it's great to be able to listen to all of them in a line as we try and keep this theme of looking for the real Jesus together. So we now come um, to this passage at the end of um, chapter 7. And this is the end of what's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, And if you go back to the beginning of chapter 5, you'll find out why it's called that. It's rather obvious, really. And it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... And so it goes on. So Jesus had gone up onto this mountainside, 
He was teaching his disciples or his followers or his learners um, with him, but we also know that there were crowds of people there as well because at the end of chapter 8, it it tells us um, that the crowds were amazed at what he'd been talking about. And this sermon is kind of a collection um, of teachings, and it covers a multitude of topics within just two or three short chapters. He talks about being reconciled to those with whom we've got differences. He talks about treating the commitments of our relationships, especially the relationships of marriage, with seriousness. He talks about speaking truthfulness to those in our lives. He talks about loving others as we would love ourselves, providing for those who are in material or spiritual need, for praying in a way that honors God and isn't just all about what it sounds like to other people talks about getting our priorities right when it comes to material possessions and he also mentions being reflective about our own shortcomings and not being so swift to judge others a huge gamut of topics on very very practical issues contained in these teachings in this sermon on the bound and if you read it through especially in um, chapter 5 you'll notice a little phrase that comes up on numerous occasions. Starting in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Verse 31, it has been said. Verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard that it was said. Jesus is referring back to the teachings that the people would have received from the Old Testament, from the books of the law, from the Torah, the first five books in the Old Testament. And he's not saying that what was written in the Old Testament was wrong. But he says, you've heard that it was said X, Y, Z, but I'm telling you A, B, C. He's not saying that it was wrong, but he's saying that some of the things that they might have heard taught about these things weren't quite as they should be. He was wanting to put right some of the misconceptions that they may have been taught by their religious leaders, by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, who had often made the law a, a real externalistic thing. It was all about doing. It was all about being good. It was all about following the law to the letter. And Jesus' teaching was all about, actually, no, it goes a lot deeper than that. It's not just about doing good stuff. It's about our attitudes. It's about what goes on in our hearts, not just doing the right things. He talks about that in a bit more detail later on in Matthew chapter 23. And he talks about the Pharisees in rather derogatory way in terms of the, the teachers of the law there. He says, well, actually, you, you take the laws, and look, there's a law that talks about tithing, which is essentially offering up 10% of all that we have um, to God. And he's not, he's not saying that's wrong, but he's saying, you know, you're taking this to the minutiae. You're even going into your herb garden, and you're cutting 10% of your mint and 10% of your cumin out to give as a sacrifice to God. Well, that in and of itself is not wrong if that's what you want to do. But in doing that, you're neglecting the greater things that the law is supposed to be all about, about justice and about mercy and about faithfulness. 
So this is who the real Jesus was. He was quite radical in his teaching. He was saying, you know, this is the law as you've been taught, but actually I'm coming to fulfill that. I'm going to teach you what the heart of this law is all about. He talks about, in these chapters, loving your enemy. He talks about the fact that adultery isn't just a physical act of sleeping with another man's wife or another woman's husband, but it starts with what we see and how we process it in our hearts and in our minds. He was radical in the teaching that he had. And as Richard mentioned last week, Jesus wasn't just proclaiming a kind of a new moral code, you know, be good or else God is going to, or be good because then God will. It wasn't about that at all. It was about living life, acknowledging who the true king was in our lives. And as Richard mentioned last week, we have an allegiance in our lives. Either we have an allegiance to ourself and we put ourself at the center of our lives and what we do, or we can acknowledge the one who created us, the one who loved us, the one who gave himself for us. And that's what this whole Sermon on the Mount is really about. It's about living in the light of the kingdom of heaven with God as the one true king and leader of the kingdom and how we proclaim our allegiance to him and through our thoughts, through our words, and through our actions. But when we talk about God, or we talk about Jesus being the king, it's easy to sometimes get the wrong mental impression of what kingship is all about. It's not about kingship or queenship as we would understand perhaps in the UK, where we have a royal family and we have royal weddings, which I'm sure you're all delighted about and we'll all be um, viewing in a few weeks' time. Um, but really, on a day-to-day -day level, actually the monarchy doesn't have that much of an influence on our lives. We have parliaments and prime ministers and councils and all those kind of things which perhaps have more influence. Our monarchy doesn't have that much influence necessarily on a day-to-day -day basis. And equally, God's kingship isn't like the opposite of that, which would be a harsh dictator that we might see in some countries around the world that rules with a rod of iron and whose people must obey or else. So it's like neither of those. It's more like, to use quite a trite example, and don't go too far with this, but it's a little bit more like a football manager. Um, I know at least someone in the congregation at the moment is a supporter of a team that's about to get Steven Gerrard as their new football manager, who, as a Liverpool fan, I'm, you know, Steven Gerrard, obviously the greatest midfielder that's ever played football. And the Rangers fans are getting quite excited, I think, about having him come to be manager. Kenny's nodding over there, so that's, that's good to see. And, you know, a good manager, when they come in to a football team, come into a new team, are definitely going to say that what they say goes. They're the boss. They are the ones in charge. But a good manager is one that shares their vision with the team, that gets them excited about where they're going to go. He gets to know his players. He encourages them. He motivates them. He brings the best out of them. He gets them playing as a team and fulfilling their potential. That's why you often see teams with a new manager, same players, suddenly start performing much better. People are playing for the manager that they believe in, that they give their allegiance to. 
The players want to perform at their very best for their manager. And that's perhaps in some ways a little bit more like God's kingship. Someone who is going to say, this is the way it is. But it's someone who we want to give our allegiance to because we share in his vision for this world. We, th we thank him for his love. We realize his, of his gift of salvation for us. And we really want to play together as a team for him. So this whole sermon, this whole load of teachings can be viewed as being about how we should live as children of this kingdom. And it starts right at the beginning of chapter 5 um, with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because they are going to be the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, I've heard it explained that actually being poor in spirit is perhaps the opposite to being middle class in spirit. Bear with me with this one for a while. I think one of the dangers for those of us who are at least in global terms, if we look at the world population as a whole, and I think that would include most of us in this room, we're relatively wealthy and we're relatively comfortable compared to much of this world. And I think one of the dangers with that is thinking and believing that we've earned that ourselves purely through our own hard work and our own efforts. And I'm not saying that you haven't worked hard or that you haven't grafted. I might be saying that I haven't, but I haven't saying that you're not working hard or grafting throughout our lives. But for me, I had absolutely nothing to do with the time that I was born in. 19... <clears throat> if I'd been born 150 years earlier, my life expectancy would have been about 40. I wouldn't be standing at the ripe old age I am today here. I didn't have anything to do with the place that I was born in. You know, I could have been born in a refugee camp in a part of war-torn Africa. I didn't have anything to do with my intellect, such as it is. These were all gifts. These were things that I had absolutely nothing to do with at all. And we may have worked hard throughout our lives to maximize that potential, but we had absolutely nothing to do with the starting hand of cards that we were dealt at the beginning of our life. That is pure gift, the Bible tells us. And the term poor that Jesus is referring to here, the poor in spirit, would have been in reference to those at really at the lowest end of the economic scale. The, one, the people that had absolutely nothing in material terms at all, that relied entirely on others to provide them with enough to survive. Everything they had was gift from others. And so Jesus is saying to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that we've not earned the love of God, that we haven't earned our salvation, that what we have from him is free gift. It's not about our hard work at all. It's acknowledging that it's a gift from God that we simply have to receive, a gift of God's grace. In contrast to those who would be spiritually proud or self-sufficient, thinking that God somehow owes them something. The poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
And this is the lens that Jesus wants us, I think, to hear and understand the rest of his teaching. He starts with that one phrase, and then of the next chapters, I think that's the lens he wants us to see the rest of his teaching under the poor in spirit. So we eventually get on to our passage that we read at today. That was the introduction. Um, sorry, we'll be quick on this bit. We've got uh, kind of a mini parable here that Jesus tells right at the end. The wise and the foolish builders, which if you grew up in any sort of Sunday school at any time, like I did, will have had a plethora of terrible songs written about it as well. Not so much today, but for some reason, they wrote a lot of songs about the wise and the foolish builders. Yes, that's right. You don't have to sing it. Thank you very much. Um, but Jesus would often talk in these, these parables, which some have described as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Essentially, they're kind of extended um, metaphors, really. Something familiar that was rooted in everyday life that the hearers would identify with, that they would go on to have a kind of a, a more spiritual meaning to. So for the, the listeners of their day, this would have been something that would have been very familiar to them. It was a dry, old place here. It was a part of Palestine where they were. And there were a lot of wadis, kind of sort of mini valleys that were there that were dry and dusty, and people would build houses along them as well. But very, very occasionally, you would get torrential downpours of rain. And because the ground was so dry, it would just turn into enormous floods that would race through these wadis and would crash against anything that came in their path, including the buildings. So this was a really kind of familiar um, story that these people would have been hearing. But you notice right at the beginning, verse 24, Jesus almost explains the parable before he's even started. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears them and puts them into practice. Now, I don't know if you um, recognize this um, picture up in there. Um, anyone recognize um, which insurance company uh, that dog which we're looking at represents? Churchill, thank you very much. For the sake of the um, podcast, other household and car insurance companies are available. But if you, if you remember the advertising, especially the early days advertising of Churchill, and I think he still does it today, this dog basically, all he says is, oh yes, oh yes. Whatever the narrator, whatever the person in the, uh, in the advert says to them, oh yes, oh yes. And Jesus is saying at the beginning of this, well, he's not saying it, but it's likened to this dog. He's saying, don't be like this dog that just goes, oh yes, and nods his head, oh yes, nods his head, oh yes, nods his head, oh yes, nods his head. Don't just listen to what I'm saying. Don't just listen to my teachings. You need to put them into practice. It needs to make an impact in your life. Because this parable really is all about discipleship. It's all about becoming more like Jesus, walking alongside him, learning about him. It reminds us that discipleship is first and foremost a, a matter of kind of a positive, obedient action that ultimately is foundational for this life and the life to come. And it's something that we have a responsibility for, both individually, our own discipleship, learning more about Christ, learning more about his teaching. What does it mean to be a Christian and live out for him? And that might be in 
you know, reading our Bibles. It might be attending an alpha group where we can ask questions about that kind of thing, about life groups. But it's also a, a corporate thing. It's a thing that we help others in as well, maybe joining together some people in prayer, triplets or quadruplets or in groups, joining together to study the Bible together, maybe just on a social basis, meeting together and encouraging one another in our faith and in our walk with God. So we've got a wise builder and a foolish builder. They happen to be men in this one. But don't worry, ladies, if you go back, uh, go forward to chapter 25, there's another parable which is about wise and foolish ladies as well. So you don't get off the hook either. But the wisdom in this case, the wise builder builds his house on the rock. He lays a foundation there. He's got some foresight to see what's coming ahead. And Jesus said, this is what it's like to put my words into practice. This is what it's like to be a disciple of Christ. As opposed to those who were foolish that built his house on sand, on nothing at all. Very easy to build on sand, very quick. These are the people, he says, who are not walking in the path of discipleship. These are not people that are putting into action the things that they're hearing they're just paying lip service. They're just doing an oh yes to what I'm saying. The people that are maybe just have an intellectual commitment to the faith or have a, a pretend faith, but when the storms come, those are the people that are in danger. You notice that Jesus doesn't talk about the buildings itself here. He doesn't talk about what the buildings are like on the outside, whether they're magnificent dwellings or whether they're a tin shack at all. He's talking about what they're built on, what their foundations are. And when we're talking about discipleship, when we're talking about walking close with God, we're learning more about him, putting his words into practice, sometimes appearances can be deceiving and it's only the strength of our lives are only revealed in difficult times, in crisis. You know, Jesus isn't so much concerned about our Facebook lives, you know, the ones that we put out there which demonstrate our popularity or our success or our wealth. But he's talking about what they're built on, ultimately. The song that we often sing here, Christ alone, cornerstone. Christ being that one foundation stone that holds everything together. Now you notice that the storms come, the waters come, the rains come, the floods come. And water in the Bible often symbolizes um, danger and chaos. And that is a real favorite topic of Jez. So he will be absolutely delighted when he comes back in if you nab him at the end and say, tell me about watery chaos in the Bible. I mean, you won't get out for about three days, but he will absolutely love you if you do that. But notice that the, the storms hit both the builders equally. It doesn't matter where they built it, whether they built it on the rock or the sand, those storms came to both of them. And Jesus doesn't promise that we don't get storms in our life. It doesn't matter how close we're walking with God, how close we're accepting of Christ in terms of salvation. The storms are going to come. We're not promised that they won't come. We live in a broken, we live in a fallen world, which isn't as God intended it to be. And we won't be totally healed 
until God's kingdom comes in all its fullness. And many of us know about the storms of life at the moment, whether that's physical health or bereavement, or whether employment uncertainty or economic difficulties. But putting Jesus' teaching into practice, becoming more like him, becoming discipled in his ways, is one way that Jesus says it's going to help prepare you for those storms of life. But just because we're built on the rock doesn't mean to say those storms, those rains, don't affect us. This uh, building here, the lighthouse off the coast of the UK, is built on solid rock. That is on a good foundation. That is not going anywhere. But you can bet your bottom dollar, if I was in that lighthouse at that moment in time, I would be wetting myself. I don't care how much rock that is built on, that is one scary place to be. And Jesus doesn't say, just because you're on the rock, just because you're relying on the God of heaven, doesn't mean to say that the storms of life aren't scary, they aren't painful, they aren't frightening places to be, leaving us confused and worried and in pain. And often Jesus calls us to walk alongside those that are going through those storms, and that might be in a practical sense, helping to uh, meet people's physical needs, or maybe supporting people spiritually, offering to pray and walk alongside them through the difficult times. That's why he makes us a community. That's why Christianity isn't intended to be an individual path. That's why we meet together as a church, as a community, to be able to support one another through difficult times. So building on the rock, putting our faith in Christ, means that we get to taste just a little bit of that kingdom come, that we'll get to taste in all its fullness when Christ comes again. No sickness, no death, no pain, no suffering. Now, one of the things I really like about Jesus' teaching is how timeless it often is. And you might say to me, well, This isn't particularly timeless because what fool would build a house on sand today, especially in the Western world, especially in the UK? Well, there's an example of it. That's a place called Hemsby, and I know it very well because it's about five miles away from where I grew up, and we were actually walking along that very beach about four weeks ago when I was visiting my parents. And it's uh, it's the top of the dunes, which used to be about 50 meters further out to sea. But over the last few years, the rains and the sea have gradually eroded it away and gradually eroded it away and gradually eroded it away. So now there's multiple chalets and houses like this that are literally toppling onto the sand. Everything's lost. There was a story in, on the BBC website, actually, about one guy who'd bought one of these houses about four or five years ago for £40,000, apparently. And he was in shock that it was now at the bottom of the cliff on the beach. And he said, well, four or five years ago, you know, it was 20 metres away from the cliff. I thought it was safe, you know. He didn't see the storms coming. He didn't see the rains coming. And that's what happened. And you know, the next picture shows another house that I took a picture of while I was there. 
which is a lovely house. You pro I don't know if you can see that too well on there. It's got a double garage. It's got some lovely bifold doors at the front. I reckon there's probably at least three or four bedrooms in there. Nice big driveway, probably a garden out the back. But that house is built, and I kid you not, no further away from the edge of that beach and that cliff edge than I am from the back of church here today. And the even more amazing thing, which you can't actually see on here, but just at the apex, above those windows on the right-hand side, because it looks relatively new, is a stone which says when it was built, and it was built in 2014. Four years ago, somebody built this amazing house 30 meters away from a cliff edge that is eroding at meters per year. So people are still building their houses on the sand today. So where does this leave us? The poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. The discipleship of following Jesus, not just in listening to his words, but putting them into practice, putting them into action, which is what is building our lives on a foundation of stone. Let's just have a moment to reflect on that quietly as Miriam comes up and just leads us in a couple of songs of worship. Maybe this morning you might want to reflect on what it means to be poor in spirit, to recognize that everything that we have is gift from God and that we accept God's gift of grace in our lives, putting him on the throne in our lives as king, building on that foundation on the rock. There's many people here that have made that decision, some at a particular moment in time, some over a long period of time. It doesn't matter. But that's what God asks, that we just simply come to him with empty hands and thank him for his gift of salvation seeking to follow him. And maybe it's about discipleship, about walking closer with God, learning more about him. Who can you walk alongside and help them to build on that firm foundation? And maybe it's about walking alongside people that are going through these storms of life that are buffeting them regardless of where they've built their lives. Christ calls us to walk alongside others. Father God, we thank you so much for your free gift of salvation to us. We thank you for your free gift of love to us. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to follow you more closely in our daily lives, that we might tell the truth about your great love to the communities that we are in through the way that we think through the ways that we act and ultimately everything that you might have the glory Amen